Morning, everybody. It's great to see you. I love this vantage point to just sort of look around the room, see who's present here. And before we move into the teaching moment, I would like to not rush too quickly from what we've just been singing and just invite us to to hold space for a moment and particularly for those who are having a hard time believing in the goodness of God at this particular moment. Um, And just invite us to be still for just a moment and hold space for those who, are, who would have a hard time with that in this, in this day. Maybe there's some circumstances or things that are going on in your story that are really challenging that faith. And those of you who are having an easier time believing, would you, as you're holding space, lend faith uh, to those uh, through your prayers uh, for those who are having a, a more difficult uh, time? Let's just hold space together for a brief moment. God, with uh, whatever faith we muster, we echo the words of the psalmist who said, you are good and your love endures forever. May we sense and experience uh, your love for us today, your love that flows to us and from us out to others that we come in in connection with. Give us faith to trust you this morning. In the name of Christ, amen. Didn't plan this, but we were singing the word good a lot, and I'm gonna ask you a question this morning as we get going that has the word good in it, and it's, what is the good life? Bit of a thought experiment. If you think about that, what is a good life? What comes to mind when you think of a life that is truly good? Each of us, yeah, response. Contentment, great, this is good. Well, let's do this. Michelle started us down a road here of some words. Uh, Let's hear some words, that's great. Anyone else have a thought? Food. Good life consists of food, yeah. So it's a good one. So an echo. It's a little check mark on that one. Belonging. It's good. Relaxation. Wow. Being honest with yourself, with the people around you. Anyone else? To love and be loved. Peace of mind. Your, your answers are considerably more noble, noble than I was sort of imagining that, you know, our default responses when it comes to a good life, thinking of like, yeah, money, you know. Um, but to get closer to what your personal vision for a good life might be, to think about this question, what would a perfect day look like or a perfect holiday? Um, some, some of us might fill it with reading novels or poetry. There would be a lot of relaxation, potentially. Others might prefer to stroll through museums or art galleries or gardens or parks or beer gardens. Uh, Some of us might automatically imagine ourselves on a sandy beach, obviously not in hurricane season. Others dream of vast amounts of time binging on Netflix or playing video games or surfing or hiking or sailing. It's interesting that when most of us think of the good life, our default response or our gut responses veer towards fantasy and leisure and various grass is greener type scenarios. 
which usually means that we tend to think whatever I imagine a good life to be, I'm not living it right now. What is the good life? Is also a question that philosophers reaching back to antiquity and certainly up to the present day have been wrestling with. Plato, along with his mentor Socrates, would define the good life in terms of reasonable restraint and civic duty. Kant speaks of the highest good as being the attainment of both complete virtue and happiness at the same time. And of course, it's a circuitous path to actually arrive at that. Nietzsche would suggest it has more to do with being able to think for oneself and as much as possible to embrace the hand we're dealt in life. North American culture, by and large, tells us that it's up to us as individuals to define what the good life is and then to do whatever it takes to make it happen. Good life is whatever you want it to be and whatever you make it to be. This past week, we learned of the death of Playboy founder Hugh Hefner, the iconic figure who, in addition to making pornography more socially acceptable, available, and lucrative, also spent a life espousing a philosophy of sexual freedom that would supposedly undo the repression he saw in North American life. Russell Moore commented on this with these words, the death of any person is a tragedy, full stop. Hugh Hefner is no exception to that. We can't, though, with his obituaries, call his life success or a dream. Hefner did not create, but marketed ingeniously the idea that a man's life consists in the abundance of his possessions and of his orgasms. To women, he marketed frenetically the idea that a woman's value consists in her sexual availability and attractiveness to men. The bunny logo is well chosen because in the end, Mr. Hefner saw both men and women as essentially rabbits. This path was portrayed vividly by John Updike in his Rabbit Angstrom series, It Is Not a Happy Life. Often the good life as Western culture, as far as Western culture is concerned, gets reduced to some version of this formula. Earn more, possess more, have more sex, be more successful, win at all costs. But I wonder, is that the best we can come up with? Is there a better answer to this question? And it's important that we answer the question well, not for the purpose of being right or wise or articulate, but because the way you answer the question will determine the kind of person you and I will become. Our idea of the good life, if we practice imagining it frequently and vividly enough, eventually becomes this picture of our longed-for future. It literally becomes what we live for. So this picture, in a sense, pulls us into a vision for its fruition. And pretty soon, every decision we make, everything we do, gets filtered through this lens. And we're increasingly driven by it. In the famous children's book, The Little Prince, uh, the author Antoine, whose last name I'm not confident enough to try pronouncing, um, sums up the power of such attraction when he says this, if you want to build a ship, he counsels, don't drum up people to collect wood, don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. We are far less motivated by abstract ideas than by visions of flourishing. Now, as such visions take over more and more of our desires, drawing us toward them, we become shaped by them. And here's the key. This happens whether we realize it or not. We are always being formed by something. The only question is what or whom. So what version of the good life do you and I want to be shaped by? 
Which version does the world most need? The, the Christian tradition tells an alternative story, alternative story to the predominant narrative, uh, narratives and visions that we see around us. It suggests that a good life is something human beings are unable to acquire by their own efforts. It, it paints a picture of the good life as being one that's received rather than achieved. It exposes the lie that any of us are self-made and turns it right on its head. It claims that the good life is indeed possible, but it doesn't happen by strict adherence to individualist ideologies. It happens through loving surrender to a person. A person who is the best example of a life well lived. The person of Christ. And the call of Jesus can be summed up really in two words. Follow me. To follow Jesus, to practice his way, is the path of discipleship. Follow me, he says. Listen to me. Keep company with me. This is the good life, according to scripture. To be a disciple, to be an apprentice of Jesus. It's the invitation that he still extends to us today. And throughout the fall now, the how of this is what we'll be looking at uh, through this fall series that we're calling simply the Practicing the Way of Jesus. The why of it is what I want to spend uh, some time looking at today as we begin to introduce this series. So I'm going to pray for help to that end, and let's uh, please join me in praying together again. Hmm. Jesus, it is our confession that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we desire to see more clearly what that means, why we need to follow you, and why that's good news for us and the world around us. So we ask for open hearts and minds as we open up your scripture, as we, as we consider this teaching this morning, that you would rest here and speak to us by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. In his book, You Are What You Love, uh, the book we'll be exploring together in our table group in a couple of weeks, uh, Jamie Smith, or James K.A. Smith, asks a ton of great questions. So I'm going to lay one on you this morning. He asks, do you ever experience a gap between what you know and what you do? A gap between what you know and what you do. Have you ever found that learning a bunch of new stuff doesn't automatically translate into a new way of life? Ever had the experience, for example, of hearing an amazing sermon or podcast? <laughs> a little too enthusiastic, Dice. <laughs> or podcast or watching a mind-blowing TED Talk and you wake up the next morning with deep conviction, with serious motivation to turn over a new leaf, and you are already failing 12 hours later that same evening. Yeah. We are thirsty for knowledge. We hunger after ideas. Many of us want to be like Jesus, yet all our head knowing doesn't seem to take root in the way we live. It would appear we can't think our way into Christ-likeness. Don't we all instinctively know, as someone put it, that information is not transformation? We know that, right? But why is that not the case? Is it just because we're forgetful? Or is there some other elusive silver bullet bit of knowledge that if we only knew it, we would, could grab hold of it and then life change? Is it because we're not thinking hard enough? Smith then asks, well, what if it's because you aren't just a thinking thing? What if the problem here is precisely the implicit model of human person that we've been working with in this whole approach to discipleship? What if Descartes was wrong? What if we aren't first and foremost thinking beings, but desiring beings? 
we become so accustomed to reading the Bible through a Cartesian, I think, therefore, I am lens that if we finally permit ourselves to set aside these modern blinders, we'll find something totally different in the scriptures. Here's a good example. If you have your chair Bible close by, I invite you to turn to uh, page 818. It's also in the handout if you got one of those this morning. It's a short little text from Philippians. Chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Paul's praying, he's sending this letter to the church at Philippi. He says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If we read this too fast, we might think that Paul is mainly talking about knowledge, Our thinking being mentality, almost by default, draws us to pay attention to language about the mind. So we might assume Paul is praying that the believers in Philippi would deepen their knowledge so that they would know what to love. That information might lead to their transformation. But it's actually the opposite. Look again with me. Notice the sequence of Paul's prayer. He prays that their love may abound more and more. Why? Because in some sense, love is the condition for knowledge. In other words, it isn't that we know in order to love, but rather we love in order to know. And so if we are to discern what is best, what is excellent, what what really matters, what is of ultimate value, if we're to answer the question, what is the good life, and answer it well, Paul tells us that the place to start is by attending to our loves. That's what he's praying for us to be able to do. So what if discipleship, as James Smith asks, is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than knowing and believing? What if Jesus' invitation to follow him is about bringing our own desires into alignment with his so that we start to want what God wants? Does this sound like the good life to you? It does to me. Does it sound easy? Not to me. If this is what a Jesus apprenticeship looks like, reconfiguring our desires so that they line up with his, why aren't more people signing up? Could the main reason be that our desires are already so out of alignment that we have a hard time imagining it's even possible? Hearing Jesus' invitation to to be his apprentices but deciding not to take him up on it doesn't mean you simply enter some sort of unaffected middle ground where you're not being shaped at all. As we've said, we're all being discipled all the time. We are never not being shaped by something. So if you forgive forgive a really oversimplified analogy, imagine spiritual formation being sort of like a car's gear shift. Only in this particular vehicle, there's no neutral and there's no park. There's only forward and reverse. You're either being formed by the way of Jesus or you're being deformed by something or someone else. You're either experiencing formation or counterformation. We've got some fantastic teachers who have lived and explored these realities of formation and counterformation. I think one of the best is Parker Palmer. It's a longer quote, but stick with it. It's really good. Let's listen together. All of us arrive on earth with souls in perfect form. But from the moment of birth onward, the soul or true self is assailed by deforming forces from without and within, by racism, sexism, economic injustice, and other social cancers by jealousy, resentment, self-doubt, fear, and other demons of the inner life. Most of us can make a long list of the external enemies of the soul, but often we conspire in our own deformation. 
For every external power bent on twisting us out of shape, there is a potential collaborator within us. When our impulse to tell the truth is thwarted by threats of punishment, it is because we value security over being truthful. When our impulse to side with the weak is thwarted by threats of lost social standing, it is because we value popularity over being a pariah. Brief sidebar here. Um, I'm becoming more convinced all the time that language of formation and counterformation, or true self and false self, is much more helpful than thinking and speaking of spiritual aliveness in terms of proximity to God. You can't get closer to God than you already are, nor can you get further away. You can become more aware of his presence or less aware. You can be living more out of your false self your ego than your true self, which is your image of God's self, but scripture's witness seems to be that our circumstances do not determine the nearness of God's spirit. The poet who penned Psalm 139 understood this clearly. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night, Around me, even the darkness will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Every once in a while, I hear someone say, oh, that person's so far away from God. I, I don't buy it anymore. I don't think it makes sense, at least not in a faith system that's all about downward trajectory. God comes to earth in incarnate human form. God in Christ lives his life for others, even to the point of death. Downward, downward. God the Spirit is given as a free gift so that he might live inside those who believe. Downward, immersed in our messiness, for, toward, this God does not ever seem to stop coming close, even to those who would try to run. If it's true that you and I have been made in the image of God, then it means the divine DNA is stamped on each and every human person. Might be broken, might be tarnished, unrecognizable, hidden beneath layers of sin, regret, unhealing, but it hasn't gone anywhere. We may try to abandon the divine image, but it never abandons us. I said this as a sidebar, but it's more of a backdrop, maybe. Something to keep in mind as we touch on the dynamics of formation and counterformation. So another thought experiment. We all have things we're good at, things that we can do better than other people. And there are aptitudes, right, abilities which kind of come more naturally without having to work at it, like being good with numbers or being good with connecting with people like Scott McTaggart. But I want to invite you to think of a skill or a practice that you've gained some mastery over, some mastery, some mastery over, that you have had to work toward. Okay, so something you're good at, but it's taken some work to get there. I'll give you a few seconds to reflect and just come up with something. Don't speak them out. Just think about it. Now take a moment to think about not only the formative practices that enabled you to get better, but also the counterformative practices that you said no to in order to stay the course. Make sense? You got to a place, you gave yourself to some formative practices, and you said no to some counterformative practices. Brief silence again to reflect on that. Our children know it's painful to think about those things. Sorry, a small joke that came too late. Um, this is a bit of my story. This is a screenshot taken from my Nike Plus running app. So yesterday morning, uh, I hit the 3,000 total kilometer milestone. Now, thank you. This looks like a humble brag, and I guess it sort of is. 
but it's not the primary reason I'm showing it to you. I just want to put it in perspective. I just went on Google Maps and discovered that 3,000K is the distance from Vancouver to Thunder Bay, Ontario. So I started using this app in September 2013. So basically, it took me four years to run not even halfway across Canada. So thank you. <laughs> now, the reason I'm showing you this is that distance running is a practice that I've got progressively better at because I've kept at it. When I first started, it felt like torture. I remember running, jogging slowly to be more accurate for about one kilometer and feeling like I was going to die. And that memory is vivid because I was with a friend who had been a runner for years and we found ourselves in New York City and he's like, well, we, when we go to New York, we have to run in Central Park. We have to. I'm like, yeah, totally we do. <laughs> and I had this picture of what it was going to be like and then I started running. It's like, no, I'm dying after eight minutes. Over time, I learned that getting better at running, and for me, that means just being able to run greater distances, not necessarily faster, was as much about rejecting counterformative practices as it was adopting formative practices. So counterformative practices, like not running, like hitting snooze until it's too late to go for a run, uh, like going long stretches of time without going for a run, like eating really poorly and drinking too much the night before a run. Here's another thing about formation. True and lasting change often takes way longer than we might anticipate. It's hard work. It requires immense patience and perseverance. One practice I'm at the very, very beginning stages at is something called centering prayer. It's a form of contemplative prayer through which you practice giving consent to the loving action of God's spirit within you. Those who teach and write about centering prayer have, of course, been doing it for years, and they say that with this practice, you need to do it for 20 minutes a day, twice a day, for six months, before you decide whether it's for you or not. <laughs> That's serious. So take our rapidly diminishing attention spans, combine it with our demand for nothing less than instant gratification, and these are in themselves an example of a way of being our culture disciples us in. So when it comes to spiritual practices, we seldom even have the capacity for follow-through to even see whether a thing will be bare fruit in our lives or not. We don't have the attention spans for it. Counterformative practices often win the day. We know better. But again, that knowing hasn't translated into life change for all the information we have access to about the dangers of this and that and the other thing and hasn't led to transformation. So the first step, next image, may be indeed knowing that you have a problem. But it's only the first step. There are miles and miles to go if you truly want to change. Now, there are a ton, of course, of examples of counterformative practices that have become embedded as cultural norms. We could talk about the similarities between shopping malls and places of worship and how the liturgical practice of shopping has shaped us. We could talk about how stadiums form us. Are they merely where sports are played, or are they temples of nationalism and militarism? We could talk about how message boards on the internet have spawned a culture of hate. I'd like to take a few moments to explore what is possibly the most culturally acceptable, yet most counterformative practice in our culture today. I'm talking about how we use our smartphones. Phones. Can't even say the word, smartphones. So there's this cartoonist, I just had mine here because it's super necessary to have when you're preaching. Um, there's a cartoonist named Leanna Fink 
whose work sometimes appears in the New Yorker and whose work tends to hit pretty close to home. Here's one image. The text is a little bit small, so I want to read it to you. It just says across the top, schedule. 7 a.m., wake up, check phone, brush teeth, check phone while peeing. 7.15, make breakfast, check phone, eat breakfast, check phone, put on coat, check phone. 7.45, leave house, check phone, walk to subway, check phone, get on subway, check phone, walk to workplace while checking phone, send email while walking. 8.30, get an elevator, send another email, check phone, check phone while pooping. 8.40 to 12, check phone while working. Get, I have a two-year-old, almost two-year-old, so I have no issues saying these things in church. Um, check phone while working, get an elevator while checking phone. 12.15, check phone while waiting for salad. 12.30, eat, eat while checking phone. One, walk back to work while checking phone. 1.05, work while checking phone. That's till 5 p.m., 6 p.m. Uh, 6.05, leave while checking phone. 7 to 10, see friends, occasionally showing them things on phone. 10.05, leave. 10.06, check phone. 10.10, subway slash phone. 11 to 1, text. 105, get ready for bed. 120, check phone. I don't know. I like, what do you say? Is it ringing true? Here's one more uh, by uh, Leanna Fink. Comedian Abby Crutchfield uh, had a quote on Twitter. She said, one day you're going to look up from your phone and be at the end of your life. What's especially telling are the comments that appeared after. One person, too real. Way too deep for Friday night. Next person said, well, now I don't want to look up. Yeah, that's most of us. I came across a New York Times article that asks whether teens are replacing drugs with smartphones. It says that despite an opioid epidemic, the rise of deadly synthetic drugs and the widening legalization of marijuana, American teenagers are growing less likely to try or regularly use drugs, including alcohol. The trend has apparently been building for about a decade with fits and starts, but no clear understanding as to why, which has led researchers to a provocative question. Are teenagers using drugs less in part because they are constantly stimulated and entertained by their computers and phones? They say it's a possibility worth exploring because use of smartphones and tablets has exploded during the same period that drug use has declined. So one researcher said, people are carrying around a portable dopamine pump, and kids have basically been carrying it around for these last 10 years. In another article from The Atlantic, author Jean Twenge asks, have smartphones destroyed a generation? There's a small portion of that article. The number of teens who get together with their friends nearly every day dropped by more than 40% from 2000 to 2015. The decline has been especially steep recently, it's not only a matter of fewer kids partying, fewer kids are spending time simply hanging out. That's something most teens used to do. Nerds and jocks, poor kids and rich kids, C students and A students, the roller rink, the basketball court, the town pool, the local makeout spot, they've all been replaced by virtual spaces accessed through apps and the web. The results could not be clearer. Teens who spend more time than average on screen activities are more likely to be unhappy and those who spend more time than average on non-screen activities are more likely to be happy. There's not a single exception. All screen activities are linked to less happiness, and all non-screen activities are linked to more happiness. 
Eighth graders who spend 10 or more hours a week on social media are 56% more likely to say they're unhappy than those who devote less time to social media. Admittedly, 10 hours a week is a lot, but those who spend six to nine hours a week on social media are still 47% more likely to say they're unhappy than those who use social media even less. Now, I realize a few things in offering this research. One is that much more could be said. It's a nuanced conversation. Even so, it's hard to argue with some pretty clear indicators that something is wrong. I realize also that happiness is not the only measure of a good life. It's a big theme we've been looking at. I also realize this is about teens, and most of us aren't teens, but the teen years weren't that long ago for some of us. And it won't be long before others among us have teenage daughters and sons. So I, I offer it to help us feel the weight of the problem and to recognize how universal it is and to trust that the Spirit will make the connections and discern, help us discern what's true of us. And if your smartphone isn't your Achilles heel, it's something else. It's not enough just to know there's a problem. We need a new way of being. We need a fresh vision of a truly good life, one that isn't just for us but for our neighbors. And we need to attend to our loves with eyes open and with radical honesty about what our counterformative practices are doing to us. That's a core aspect of who we are as the people of God. This quote that's also in your handout, James Smith, the body of Christ is that unique community of practice whose members own up to the fact, and we don't always love what we say we do, that the devices and desires of our hearts outstrip our best intentions. So I want to offer some invitations. God has a vision for the good life. God is good. We started out affirming that reality. His love endures forever. And so, of course, God has a vision for what a good life is all about. And he's not stingy with it. He's not secretive about it. God isn't a hoarder. He's an inviter. God has given us an example to follow in the person of Christ. Let's hear Jesus' invitation again together. Are you tired? Worn out? burned out on religion. Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. What an invite. Watch how I do it. You do the same. Learn from me. Apprentice yourself to me. It won't be heavy. It'll fit you. God has made the first move, and not in an aloof, detached, impersonal way. God isn't sitting around with this sense of self-justified entitlement going, well, giving these people everything. If they keep insisting on autonomy, don't choose my way. That's on them. I can't help it. I wash my hands. That may be the attitude we sometimes take on when we feel like we've helped someone kind of for the last time. It might be an attitude then that we project onto God, but loved ones, let me tell you, that is not what God is like. God wants you to succeed in this. He's made the first move, and God is committed to making first moves every leg of the journey, as many first moves as you need. We aren't the initiators. We are always joining God and even the motivation to join God, as minimal as it might be, is itself a gift from God. So along with this primary invitation, here are a few others. One we could say would be just to renew focus. Lance mentioned artisan's mark, 
at least once or twice during the September series. This is where we want to go, our mark. This is what we want. To see Vancouverites transformed into followers of Jesus, not the other way around. Practicing his way and becoming like him in every sphere of life. This is what we're aiming for. A city full of Jesus' apprentices. During our teaching moment throughout the fall season, we'll be looking closer at practices that train us in the Jesus way. Next week, Lance will be saying a bit more about apprenticeship. But maybe a good first practice would be simply to familiarize ourselves with Artisan's Mark. This is, this is where we're going. It's, it's on our website under About and Vision. And we'll make sure we do an Instagram post about it this week and get some hard copies out on the info desk. But a good way to become familiar with our mark is to pray it. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for our neighbors. Pray it for the fellow artisan, co-artisans. Put it on your fridge or on your smartphone lock screen. If you're going to look at it that much, then it'll be there. It really is an extension of that part of the Lord's Prayer that says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Renew focus. Second, renounce counterformative tendencies or renounce counterformation. This begins with what scripture calls repentance. And I hope we hear that as a hopeful word. Um, it simply means to turn, to, to name, to confess, to acknowledge, and finally turn away from that which steals life and turn toward that which brings life. I love what Erica Lane said. She said, think of saying no as saying a bigger yes. Think of saying no as saying a bigger Yes. Saying no to a counterformative practice is a good kickstart rhythm. The practice of saying no begins to develop into a habit that propels you towards saying yes to something greater. Here's an image from a guy called Scott the Painter. It's really a picture of repentance, turning away from the idolatry of control. And he's a good follow on Instagram. Just do a search for Scott the Painter. And he also offers a prayer to pray. This was in the caption below. Free me from that which lessens my life. Free me from that which lessens my life. So in our renouncing, our turning from is the first step. Turning toward comes next. So thirdly, I want to invite you to reclaim your identity as a disciple. Reclaim your identity as a disciple. Now, you recognize, of course, the, the, the similarity between disciple and discipline. And many of us aren't the biggest fans of that word. It's the same root. I mean, maybe we think of discipline as punishment, but it's different. Punishment is about compensating for a wrong committed. Discipline is about making things right. It's about getting back on track, settling the matter, resolving the issue, fixing the problem, healing a broken agreement or promise. It's reconciling so we can keep going. On uh, my Nike Plus running app, I was kind of caught. I hadn't heard this. I have it set so that it gives me encouragement after my run. Like this, the voice comes in and said, hey, you killed it today. Way to go. Like, it helps. Um, so this one was the first time I'd heard it in four years. Hey, nice run. Fuel up. Hydrate. Recover. There are more starting lines to take. Make sure you're ready for them. There are more starting lines to take. I want to make sure you're hearing me correctly when I'm talking about practices. Spiritual practices aren't just about adding more activity, working or trying harder. This is not a relapse into legalism. Legalism has no place here. Practicing the way of Jesus is different. It's about cultivating rhythms that enable us to live well in all of life. That includes rest and recovery and food and hydration. So what's the intended result about the, of this? Back to Philippians 1. 
And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As we respond to Jesus' invitation to follow, to apprentice ourselves to him, to attend to our loves, as we renew focus, as we renounce counterformation and reclaim our identity as disciples, the promised result is fruitfulness, the truly good life, kingdom life. So invite us to pray together. Will you pray with me? Let's be still for a moment. Begin. And then we'll come to the table. The psalm from the lectionary this morning, uh, which Eva read earlier, just struck me as such a fitting close, closing prayer, so I want to read it again, just those first nine verses. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. Amen. As we uh, receive Christ's invitation to come to his table and to join him in fellowship with him and with one another, let's remind ourselves of uh, what this table is all about and centered on.